Hey, everybody. Good morning. Uh, my name is Dave Burden. I'm not Elliot Cherry. I'm not Daryl Jones. Uh, I am the senior associate pastor here at Midtown Fellowship. Uh, I know both of those guys and uh, love them both dearly. Uh, Y'all are graced to have uh, two men who are humbly uh, trying to follow Jesus and lead y'all to the same. So uh, love on them. Uh, encourage them. Uh, they need it. Uh, my job is, uh, is to do that full time, uh, is to be a pastor to the pastors and really invest in them. So uh, it's also to be the third string preacher, I guess, at this point. Uh, I was the pastor at Creep Hall for about 12 years. Um, so when people don't want to write sermons over Thanksgiving, they call in the Call the substitute. So, um, so I was thinking about this uh, getting ready for Advent, and um, I had a former boss. Uh, I've been at Midtown since 2001, uh, so many of you don't even know Midtown's that old. Um, but I had a former boss because I did three years uh, a stint in youth ministry, which is kind of like a holding pen for future pastors, right? Don't trust anybody uh, who's a pastor who's never at least had to do a little bit of youth ministry, but. Uh, three years in youth ministry, and I had a former boss um, who I, probably still to this day is the person that I would say loved all things Christmas more than anybody else. Um, like loved, loved, loved the season. And part of being an employee, uh, an, an intern for him, was is that we had to go, we were made by him to go to the mall every day between Thanksgiving and Christmas as a part of our job. Everybody's not laughing at that. I mean, that's hilarious, y'all, right? That was a requirement of our jobs to actually go in. We had to bring some sort of proof of entrance into the mall that we had actually been there. And um, while that's probably a stewardship issue uh, of time and resources uh, and kind of ridiculous, uh, he absolutely loved the Christmas spirit and um, wanted us to get in the mood. Now, I would argue uh, that I'm not sure going to the mall uh, it should be the thing that rouses the Christmas spirit in us. Uh, it's probably rouses more like unbridled materialism in us. But uh, underneath all good materialists, and you are one if you don't know it, um, lies at least a seed, uh, at least a seed of hope, of desire of longing uh, that is actually very pure and very holy and very precious. And it's a longing and a desire um, that we spent most of the fall talking about in Revelation uh, that all things would be made new, right? That's what you go, uh, whether you know it or not, you go to the mall looking for. Everyone goes to the mall looking for a garment that will cover up all the lack, all the loss, all the void uh, that we feel. Uh, the, the distance between desire and reality that we experience and we walk around with, as Ecclesiastes 3 says, the eternity that's in our hearts that we can't fathom. Um, we go to the mall looking for that, that garment. Like Revelation says, a robe, uh, if you remember that, that that's got to be given, right? That we can't create for ourselves, but it's got to be given. And if you're like me, a lot of days, and Christmas can do this to us, you kind of settle for Gucci instead of glory, right? 
Like you, you do some retail therapy instead of actually embracing the resurrection power that is available to us. And so our hope is in this Advent season that you would really lean in because that's what we're starting today. We're starting a sermon series in Advent um, called Come Lord Jesus. And Advent, if you're not familiar with Advent, if you're not familiar with church, it's awesome. Uh, it's good that you're here. Um, Advent just merely means this. It's not a uniquely Christian word. It just means to come or an arrival of sorts. So anybody coming or anybody arriving, that's what Advent is. And so this season in the church calendar for Christians is a season where we not only celebrate, we look back into history and we celebrate that Christ, yes, did come. Um, but we also, as those who are in between his first and second coming, we actually, like we were talking about in Revelation for a long time, we are those who are awaiting his second coming, his return. And so just like Revelation, Advent does the same thing. Revelation invited us. How do we actually kind of reframe our hearts, our minds, our realities to the fact that Christ is coming back? And we are those who live in between those two Advents. Which means this. Advent is not just a season in the church calendar. It's a state of being if you're a Christian. You are constantly living, whether you know it or not, whether you're aware of it or not, and it's dangerous to not be aware of it, in a season of Advent. And waiting's hard, right? I don't like to wait. None of us like to wait. We're in an instant society, right? Hope, living with hope and unfulfilled desire, it gets heavy, right? Hope is like spiritual planking, right? Like y'all don't realize every one of us is doing a form of yoga, all the time. You're holding the hope pose, right? And it's easy to buckle underneath the weight of unfulfilled desire. That's what Proverbs 19 says. You know, that's what we, we live with, that hope deferred makes the heart sick. When my hope is not fulfilled, I have this inherent heart sickness. So how do we, in this season of Advent, actually take care of what that hope's really all about? Actually speak to the heart sickness in an appropriate way. Don't swap out Gucci for the real glory that we were made for. Because in Christ, we're called to be those who actually in the season can be those who wait really well, who hope really well, who have peace in the midst of a season and a time of life, maybe all of our times of life, where there's lots of conflict, there's lots to be discouraged about, lots that's overwhelming. But how do we stir and live in hope and then the promises that God guarantees for us in Jesus Christ. So, with that said, here we go. We're going to push off and read from an Old Testament prophet. This is in Micah. Have you got a Bible? If not, I think it'll be on the screen. This is Micah 2, or 5, 2 through 5. The word of the Lord. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. The rest, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. We'll stop there. All right, let me pray for us. 
Lord, uh, speak to us now. Uh, we need you. We need to hear from you. Uh, these folks don't need to hear from me. I don't need to hear from me. Uh, we need your Holy Spirit to come uh, and visit. And Father, what a mysterious thing that you say that when we open up your word uh, and that someone attempts to try to unpack it, that you, you make custom comfort um, for each of us, that by your Holy Spirit, you can actually speak to the very, very specific nuanced needs of the human heart. And so what a, what a feeble and silly thing uh, for me or us to believe that any of us could do that. But Lord, we know you can. And so will you. Uh, come, Lord Jesus, come in your name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so three things uh, that I would love for us to consider that this passage is saying for us as we kind of push off uh, the Advent boat from shore. Okay. And um, here they are. So if you're a note-taking type, take some notes. Here we go. So first thing is this. Uh, we need a king. That's part of what this passage is saying to us. You and I, we need a king. Uh, the word in here is ruler, uh, but I'm going to use the word king because they're kind of synonymous. There's a reasoning. The, uh, the author uses ruler. We'll get to that. But we need a king. That's what we're waiting for. Secondly, we need a certain type of king. So we don't just need any old king. We do need a king, but we need a certain type of king. And then thirdly, uh, no king, like N-O, no king, no peace. Okay? And then if you want to get really creative, you can drop down and go K-N-O, no king, then you can actually know some peace. All right? I should have had a slide done for that, but I was eating turkey, right? So, all right. Here we go. We need a king. We need a ruler. That's what it says. You know, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times. So it might be obvious, uh, or kind of easy, it might be almost so obvious it would be easy for us to overlook this. I don't think it would have been like easy for them to overlook the original audience of the day based on what was going on in their lives. But what Micah is saying here is that and what this is promising here to the people of God is that what they were waiting for, and if that's what they were waiting for, then we, we, we need to understand that the Bible doesn't mean something different to them that wouldn't mean to us. So this is what we're waiting for too, okay? What we're waiting for is someone strong enough to overcome all of the adversaries outside of us and all of the adversaries inside of us, Okay? That's what this is saying. You are waiting, O Israel, O Judah, O people of God. You're waiting for someone strong enough, capable enough, able enough to overcome all of the adversaries outside of you and all of the adversaries inside of you. That's what you need. You need a king. You need a ruler. Now, the outside evil that they were facing at the time would have been pretty obvious to them. And I'll just say that for us personally, it's always easier for me to find what's wrong in the world outside of me, right? I can, I can point out your problems far easier than I could admit my own. Just a little trick here. If you can see it in them, it's because it's in you somewhere. That's why you see it so clearly, right? Because you have, you have the eyes to see it because it's in you. The outside evil is always easy to see. And at this time in redemptive history, what was going on, with the people of God while Micah was a prophet was the Assyrians, soon would be the Babylonians after them, 
At that point, we're conquering the people of God. The northern kingdom and Israel and Samaria, its capital, uh, had fallen, I think, at this time. And they were coming for the southern kingdom, Judah. The kingdom of, you know, of God's people was divided into two kingdoms at this point. So Israel in the north, Judah in the south, Samaria in the north, Jerusalem in the south. And they were being, they were about to be fully overtaken, fully conquered, and really humiliated as the people of God. That was what was going on. So it was very clear to them, we have some outside evil, some outside forces. But what's a little less obvious, and it's important for us to, we've got to understand this, the fact that the people of God at this time were divided north and south, Israel and Judah, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And the fact that God was sending the Assyrians, these weren't just people doing their own thing. These were agents, you know, God bringing an instrument through the Assyrians of discipline and judgment. I'm sending these people to defeat you, Israel. Right? Was all due to the fact, why the outside things were happening was due to the fact that Israel, right, that God's people were full at that point of their lives of divided hearts and divided minds. They were actually not just at odds with the Assyrians, they were at odds with God. And they had been for some time, right? <clears throat> Another way to say that is there was evil outside of them, but there actually was also evil inside of them that God was trying to address and trying to deal with. They were constantly prone to worshiping the wrong things. They were rebellious. Another way to say it is this. They had lost their, or sorry, they were lost in their own rule of their own lives, that was the state of God's people. We're going to decide what's best for us. And this wasn't God just being knee-jerk at this point. This was like 500 years of rebellion, right? So when Scripture says God is you know, slow to anger, abounding in love and compassionate, he had been slow, offering all, a lot of time for Israel to, to return. And what was going on at the time with the leaders of the day, the spiritual leaders and the prophets of Israel, is they were all corrupt. The people leading the people were corrupt. Right? And before we kind of distance ourselves, we're like, geez, I'm glad I'm not one of those people, right? Before we kind of do that, you know, to be a spiritual leader or prophet at that time was basically somebody with influence and power in the areas that mattered. They were the it people, right? Politically, socially, economically, and spiritually. And they were lost, they were corrupt, right? They were committing injustices against their own people. They were committing injustices against people who weren't their own people, which they were called to love by the law of God. And they were getting wealthy off of all of it, right? There was an evil outside of them, and there was an evil inside of them. And the Lord was saying, that's a king problem, right? Paul, so let's go into the New Testament for a second, right? Paul says this about himself, which puts us in good company, and I'm inviting you to consider that you're in this company, in Romans 7, when he talks about the fact, if you go, go read Romans 7, he talks about the fact that he knows what's right and what's wrong, what he should do, what he's called to do. And he's constantly saying this, I can't do it. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I do. I'm like, yep, I get that. That's me. Constantly going against even the very things that I know God's called me to, I even want to do. And what does he say? Who will rescue me? Who will deliver me from this body that is subject to death? Who's going to save me? Because I can't do it. I can't save myself. And what does he say? Thanks be to God, 
who delivers me through what? Through Christ Jesus, my Lord. They struggled with it. Evil outside of them, evil inside of them. Paul struggled with it. We struggled with it. And Micah is warning them, right? That's what he's doing. He's forecasting this disaster of discipline because God disciplines those he loves. If he does not discipline you, he does not love you. He's loving you by this discipline, Israel. But this judgment and this discipline is going to fall. But even when he forecasts, and Micah is kind of cycles like Revelation, he forecasts there's going to become this, this, the Assyrians and then maybe the Babylonians, right? He always accompanies those cycles of warning with a promise. And that's what we just read in Micah 5. A promise that although that discipline is coming, although that judgment is coming, it will not end there. God will restore his people. Or as Exodus says, God will be his God and they will be his people. The book of Micah ends with this declaration of God's character and his promises. I'm going to deal with my people's sin. I'm going to deal with the sin outside of them and the sin inside of them. And I'm going to do that in a complete way, but it's going to be a compassionate way. And how? It's going to be this ruler that comes out of Bethlehem. That's how it's going to be accomplished. So, again, first point, they and we, we need a king. We need a ruler. That's what you're waiting for. That's what we're waiting for, right, in Jesus. We're waiting for someone who can come be the king that we need, to be the ruler that we need. And he's saying here very clearly by saying that, he's saying it is not good for you to be king of your own lives. Go read in Judges 21 talks about that. There was a time where Israel had no king and everybody did as they saw fit. That sounds pretty familiar with the day we're in, right? Everyone does what they see as fit. He's saying it's not good for you to be king of your life. He's also saying this, it's not good for you to choose your own king, right? Verse 2, we'll get into this here in a second. Out of you, Bethlehem, will come for me. Which is basically saying this, This king is coming for me. This is the king that I choose for you. So it's not good to be king of your own life. It's not good for you to choose your own king, which is tough for us, right? We live in a representative democracy where we elect our kings, as it were, rulers, to kind of enact our values. So this is kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around where we actually have to stop and ask, who is this king that God has chosen for us and why do I need him so badly? Because if I'm choosing who's king, If I'm the one who's picking what's right and what's best for me, how do I know that what I believe is what's right and what's best for me is what he believes is what's right and what's best for me? What Micah is saying to God's people, what Micah is saying to us this morning is this. We need a king that he picks. Right? We need a king. Secondly, we need a certain type of king. Sorry, I'm not used to this two-service thing. It's like the voice is going to let out on me. And I'm not as young as Elliot. All right. We need a certain type of king. So there are three descriptions that are actually given here for the kind of king. Uh, and they're kind of buried, but we'll, we'll pull them out. And here are the three. Ancient, unlikely, and a shepherd. Okay? Ancient, unlikely, and a shepherd. So we need a king. We need a certain type of king. We need an ancient king. We need an unlikely king. And we need a shepherd king. So ancient, let's take that one first, right? Because he says, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. 
from ancient times. And when you hear that, I don't know what you think, but oftentimes, at least in our modern minds, we're usually out with the old, right, and with the new. This is actually saying something very, very different than that, right? It's saying um, the one who's going to make all things new isn't new, but he's always. He's eternal. That's actually the actual translation for one from ancient times. It's one from eternal times, which means this, the king that you and I need, it's not somebody new. It's somebody who always was. It's somebody who is before us, before our thoughts, before our own personal wisdom, before our own perspectives, right? Somebody who is continuous, perpetual, somebody who's unending, somebody who's not time-bound, who never changes, somebody who's eternal. That's the type of king we need. That's the type of king we have. He's an ancient king, but he's also an unlikely king. Now he says there, but to you, Bethlehem or Ephrath, you who are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me. What is he saying when he says that? Out of Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem uh, at that point really had no political significance or pedigree. Um, it's like a small town. Everybody's you know seen somebody on The Voice or something. And they do those like background things where like she came from nowhere and she was doing hay bales and now all of a sudden she's a country star. Like you know, like this is that kind of thing. It's saying basically, hey, you're, Bethlehem is nowhere. Ephrath is nowhere. This place is is tiny town, nowheresville. But it's out of you that a king is going to come for me. Now this really kind of wrecked me when I was studying this week. And kind of meditating on what does it mean that a king would come for God? Right? What is he saying there? He's saying this. It's unlikely, not only because he's from Bethlehem, but also because he's coming for me because you, people of God, you wouldn't elect this king naturally, is what this is saying. You wouldn't pick him. He's from Bethlehem. He's from Nowheresville. Right? And here's why. Because the throne that he's coming for, the adversary that he's coming to take down, the kingdom that he's trying to destabilize, is the territory of you. It's not outside of you, it's inside of you. I'm coming for you and for your own heart. It's basically saying this, hey, the Assyrians aren't your largest problem. They're a big problem, but the biggest problem is one inside of you. It's like when G.K. Chesterton was asked, famously asked, what's the problem with the world today in like the early 1900s? He replied in the New York Times, dear sir, I am. I'm the biggest problem. That's what's wrong with the world today, right? And so it's an un- he's an unlikely king because he's a king that we wouldn't pick. He's a king who it says here, who will come for me, right? Not just for you, but who will come for me. The text is saying this, the ruler, the king that is to come, King Jesus, is coming ultimately from God to do my agenda, not your agenda. To do what I know is best for you, not what you think is what's best for you. What Micah is saying here, Jesus actually recapitulates later in John 6 where he says this, I have not come from the Father to do my own will, but I've come to do the will of the one who sent me. Which oftentimes, you're going to find out, Jesus found this out, is going to be at odds with the will and the way of the world, right? 
If I'm going to be king, if I'm going to be the one who is the king for him, that means I'm going to have to not be the king that's for you the way that you want me to be all the time. Another way to say it is this. Jesus didn't just come for us. He came for the Father, first and foremost. Out of obedience to the Father, to do his will, to be under his authority, and to rule. That's why a lot of commentators believe the word king wasn't used. To rule under the authority of the king. Which if you know your Bible, and if you don't, I'll, I'll draw the line all the way back to the, to the garden. To rule under authority of God was what the mandate to Adam and Eve was. That was what humanity was supposed to look like. We were created to rule, to inhabit the earth, to be creative, to do all the things we do under God's kingship, under God's authority, right? So Jesus is coming to do what our first father Adam could not and what we never could since that point because of sin. He's coming to be a ruler king under the father. So he's ancient. He's unlikely because he's not a king that just does what he wants. He's a king that does what the father wants. And lastly, he's a shepherd king. It says there, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness <coughs> will reach to the ends of the earth. So he's an ancient king, he's an unlikely king, and he's a shepherd king. Now, I wrestled with this a little bit because if they've been in 500 years of rebellion, they probably haven't been telling stories. This was kind of the same way it happened in the, in the wilderness, in the Exodus, right? They didn't tell the stories of old, and so there were whole generations who basically grew up not knowing anything about Yahweh. So whether shepherd king would have pinged on their imaginations, at least for us this morning, it can, right? It can at least kind of evoke some imagination or some memory of who was the great shepherd king of Israel, which was King David, right? He was a shepherd king who also was born in Bethlehem, right? And who under <clears throat> David's rule and his reign, and then his son Solomon's to follow, God's people experienced unprecedented peace. It wasn't a divided kingdom. It was a united kingdom. It was peace. It was unity. It was prosperity. It was I don't like using this word because it's so Christian-y at this point, flourishing, right? It's like, ch -ch -ch, spray a little flourishing on it. Yeah, it was flourishing. Everyone flourished under David's rule and his reign. But why wasn't just because he was an exceptional person, right? He wasn't, remember, he was the last of the sons of Jesse. He was the unlikely one. They kept bringing sons of Jesse, you know, uh, to Samuel at the time. He's like, no, not that one. No, not that one. Like, wait, he looks great. He'd be a great king. Like, no, another one, another one, another one. Why? Because it was David. And why did God choose David? Well, it says in Acts this, he chose David because he was a man after God's heart. It says this, God testified. This is what God said about David. I have found David. Not you found David. Not you picked David to be king. I picked him to be king. Remember when you wanted to pick a king, you picked Saul because you wanted a king like all the other nations. But I picked David. A man after my own heart because what? He will do everything I want him to do. What is he saying there? I mean, David obviously wasn't perfect. Go read David's life. But David was a forerunner. He was, a, he was like a picture, an image of what was to come in Jesus. And it was this. You need a king that I choose for my people and a king that I actually have his heart. I have his heart. Because if I have his heart, I have everything. 
Isn't that true? Isn't that true about you and me? When someone has your heart, don't they have all of you? Right? I mean, you do crazy things for people who have your heart. I've done some crazy things for the woman that has my heart. Emily and I have been married 20, almost 24 years now. Right? So when we first interested in one another, <clears throat> I was interested in her. Uh, she was with her family in Colorado in uh, Breckenridge skiing with her family, and I was in Crested Butte. So if you know your Colorado geography, <clears throat> that's really close if you own a helicopter. If you don't own a helicopter, it's only like 10 miles apart across the mountain range, but if you don't own a helicopter, which I didn't, uh, you basically have to go down to Gunnison, then you have to go over to Colorado Springs, and then you can like jimmy through Leadville and all the way up that way, or you can go back to Denver. It's a giant horseshoe. It's a long ways away. So she and I are talking, and I find out she's in Colorado, and I'm in Colorado, and I'm like, hey, we're both in Colorado, which is almost like saying, hey, we're both in Europe. <laughs> you know, we should meet up. You know, I'm over in Holland, and you're in Italy, but why not? So I devised a plan that I'm going to make it to Breckenridge to ski with her for a day. But I'm in Crested Butte. So what I had to do was is I met somebody that day while snowboarding. Uh, and I actually met this person, and I hitchhiked with them back to their home in Colorado Springs. And I spent the night in this stranger's house that I just met for the first time that day on the slopes. And then that person graciously got up in the morning very early and drove me to the airport where I rented a car. Uh, and then I drove that car to Breckenridge and back in a day as an eight-hour round trip. So I got up and I drove four hours one way. And then I skied all day with Emily. And then I drove back. I got an enormous speeding ticket on the way back, trying to get this car back in time to actually catch my ride that was going to take me back across the country. I did all that. Why? Love right? Yeah. She had my heart, right? And if she has your heart, she's got everything. If he has your heart, he's got everything. David was a man after God's heart, which just pointed ultimately to Jesus, who was the very heart of God incarnate. If he has your heart, he's got your money, he's got your time, he's got your gifts, he's got your decision making, he's got your values, your willingness to suffer. He's a shepherd king. That's the kind of king you and I need. And lastly, the last thing about a shepherd king is this. A shepherd king knows what it means to have sheep. And if you're a shepherd, you know this. Uh, sheep need a shepherd. Sheep cannot lead themselves. Sheep cannot guide themselves. Sheep cannot protect themselves. Sheep cannot provide for themselves. Shepherds expect sheep to get lost. Shepherds expect sheep to make dumb decisions. Shepherds expect sheep to be vulnerable and to be attacked. Shepherds need or expect sheep need to be go, go be found. Have you seen the sheep ditch meme? You guys have seen this? Has anybody seen this? Somebody posted a picture. Yes, thank you. This guy knows what I'm talking about, right? There's a meme where basically someone has, has a video of a shepherd and there's this like irrigation ditch and the sheep is down in the irrigation ditch and like covered in mud and the shepherd gets down in there and he's literally like kind of chest deep like pushing this sheep out onto the bank and he gets the sheep out and he's just covered and just gross and he like kind of army crawls out of the ditch and literally as soon as he gets out of the ditch the sheep literally runs around and just goes like and absolutely like sailor dives right back into the ditch and basically said someone just basically said like this is my relationship with God right 
I, I literally, he gets me out of the ditch and then I jump right back in the ditch. Yes. That's what Mike is saying about us. That's what he's saying to them. You need a shepherd king, somebody who will keep getting down into the ditch that you keep getting yourself into and will push you out again and again and again. Because you weren't made to lead your own heart. You were meant to have it shepherded by somebody who is far wiser, far more capable, and somebody who ultimately loves the sheep so much that they would lay down their life for the sheep. So we need a king, and we need that kind of a king. Lastly, I'll say this, and I'm going to have to kind of boogie. If you don't have that kind of king in your life, you don't have any peace. Not real peace. Um, No king, no peace. Because in verse 5, it says, when his greatness reaches to the ends of the earth, then he will be our peace. It's an interesting way to say it, right? Not he will grant us peace, not he will make everything peaceful in our lives, right? Because it says, if I kept reading in five, it says, <clears throat> and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land. Not he will be our peace and the Assyrians won't invade our land. It's when they invade our land and they march through our fortresses. We actually have the ability to have peace in the middle of that kind of conflict. He will be their peace. What's Micah saying to them and to us? He's saying this. Until that king comes, until, another way to say it would be this, until he's in the right place in our lives, in that king spot, they the listener of the day and us ultimately will long for and hope for a peace that we will only experience in a limited fashion or not at all, altogether. Because without him, there is no peace. Not this kind of peace. Right? This is not just the end of conflict. This is total shalom, is what this is talking about. But the, the hearer of the day, they were on this side of the first advent, right? Before Jesus has come. We, we actually don't have that luxury. We're on the other side of Christ's first coming. We're on the other side of the promise that Isaiah 9, you know, one of Micah's contemporaries prophesied about, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Right? He'll be the Prince of Peace. Now, when you hear Prince of Peace, <clears throat> when I think of princes, I, I think of kind of mealy, weak, tight-wearing guys who let their daddy do all the fighting for them? you have a better image of princes than that? I mean, almost all princes in movies, they're just not, I mean, I guess in the old, like, fairy tale days, there were studs, but, like, nowadays, there are always these guys who, like, they don't go out and do what a king does, right? But a prince of peace, in, in the actual original language there, it's, it's literally the war captain of my shalom. That's what it means to be a prince. It's more like, uh, if you're familiar with the film Gladiator, it's more like Maximus than Commodus, right? I'm going out to fight your battle for you. And the battle that was not between the Assyrians and God's people, but ultimately between God and God's people was that because of their sin, there was no peace. We couldn't be in right relationship. And peace in the Bible is only made through blood. Peace is not negotiated. It's atoned for. It's paid for by sacrifice. That's what Ephesians 2.13 says, by, but now in Christ Jesus you, let's talk about us, who were once far off have been brought near by what? By the blood of Christ. You know? By the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. 
His blood is our peace. That's how and why we can be at peace. And he goes on to say, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He destroyed the hostility between us and him, and therefore he can destroy the hostility between us and one another. That's what that's saying. So if we don't have vertical peace between us and the Lord, it's going to be really hard, impossible to have horizontal peace with one another. Right? Because we are ultimately, before Christ, we're at war with God, not just one another. If you've got problems with one another, it's usually a vertical problem before it's a horizontal problem. It's usually because I love myself. I'm talking about me now. I love myself more than I love my neighbors, more than I love my wife, more than I love my kids. I break the second commandment, but I'd never break the second commandment without breaking the first commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That was the problem. That was the big problem. That's why we need a king and a ruler and a deliverer is is I could not love God above myself. I can't do it. That's the Christmas conundrum, right? And he knew it. That's why he sent Jesus. And with Jesus, he sent a whole host of things in the promises of God. We needed a new heart that could be given to us by God, by grace. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith and not not of yourselves. It's what? It's a gift. I needed a gift from a king who had the power to give that kind of gift to me. I needed a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, is what Jeremiah said, so that I could, by his grace, follow his decrees. Paul talks about this in the New Testament. If you're a Christian today, you're not waiting for that new heart. You have that new heart. You are a new creation in Christ, is what Scripture says. The old is gone, the new has come. So if you're in Christ this morning... Even though you can act and I can act like Jesus isn't on the throne, he is on the throne. He has knocked sin off the throne of your heart. That's where you should go, hallelujah. You're free. He set you free. And what that practically means, and in a season like this, we need this more than anything. What that practically means is that spiritually, peace is not something we're waiting for. Peace is something we have because we have him and he has us. You have that new heart. You are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Peace can now rule and reign and shepherd and guide and protect and defend now. Even in the midst of circumstantial trouble for them, the Assyrians, for you, Thanksgiving dinner. I don't know. Right? Wherever you got trouble. Until Jesus is functioning as your shepherd and your king. Like uh, the, the, the sermon series is called Come Lord Jesus. We skip over Lord, but he's coming to be your Lord, not just your Savior. You hear it? Come Lord Jesus, be Lord of my life. Because until you're Lord of my life, I will wreck my life. And I will wreck everybody else's lives. Because that's what I do when you're not king. No king, no peace. But where he is, there is peace. And if you're in him, he is with you and promises to be with you wherever you go. So therefore, you have what you need, brother and sister, to actually be a peacemaker now. Someone who brings peace into conflict. Someone who brings peace into hopeless situations. Because you have him, you have peace. So how do we know if we're going to do it? All right, last thing. Everybody's like, geez, seriously? I know Elliot's longer than I am. Okay, Y'all are used to it. I'm sorry, I taught him that. But... 
I was wrestling with this because I can set my watch by between Thanksgiving and New Year's. People go nuts. I mean, it is like bonkers, right? Call volume. Woo! Way high, right? And it's more like Hunger Games than the holidays, right? May the odds be ever in your favor. They're not, right? That's called optimism. Optimism is, I think the odds look good for me. We aren't optimists. Christians aren't optimists. We're people of hope. In fact, Scripture would say you're a prisoner of hope. You live with hope. Hope has you. You don't have hope. It has you. And hope is, no, the odds aren't in our favor, and yet I'm still going to walk towards this. Why? Because the unlikely, the ancient, and the shepherd king did the most amazing thing that the world would have never said was possible. So I've got hope now in the midst of dark situations. I have peace that transcends understanding. I can be an ambassador of Christ in the middle of trial, not in spite of it. So I gave myself, I built this, (coughs) you can do this in your free time this week, if you want. How do I know if I'm allowing, (coughs) I mean, he is on the throne, but if I'm actually participating with Jesus' kingship in my life, And how do I know uh, based on the peace I have or experience in my life? So here's a little kind of rubric you can run yourself through. Do you have real peace or false peace? So um, here are four areas that I hear from a lot of people that they, they actually, they call this peace, but it's not peace. There's false peace, forced peace, forfeited peace, or fortune peace. None of which is peace where Jesus is on the throne. <clears throat> false peace, which probably is the most familiar to all of us, which is, is basically, I call it fake it till you make it peace, right? Like, uh, fake it till you make it or everyone dies, right? Like, we're, we're not going to actually push into the difficult area, but we're more like little sovereign states who get together and, you know, like when two sovereign states get together, they already decide what we're willing to talk about and not talk about in the diplomatic arena, and so they kind of get together and they clank glasses and they have their little meeting. But that's, that's oftentimes what we call peace in our lives, right? And that's not peace. That's false peace, right? Where we basically, we kind of limit everything down to the things that we can talk about, which is very few, and we can only spend that much time together. If that's peace to you, you don't have peace. You're not walking in the peace of King Jesus on the throne of your life. A lot of times when people realize they have false peace, then they go for the next one, which is forced peace, okay? Which is basically, I know there's not peace between us. We've been faking it, right? And so I'm going to make peace here, and I'm going to demand that we make peace. Um, I just, I won't go into that one at length, but I just tell you, if you're trying to force peace, uh, then you're king, right? You're trying to overtake in that, Um, and Jesus actually isn't sitting on the throne when you're doing that. So if you want peace, you need to continue to be open to it. You need to be ready for the opportunity. But peace requires both parties bleeding, right? Because Jesus bled, now we get to bleed, right? And so we have to be willing to sacrifice. We have to be willing to humble ourselves. We have to be willing to actually come under the kingship of Jesus to have peace between us. And oftentimes, forced peace is not somebody doing that. Everybody's like, seriously? Okay. Third thing, forfeited peace. Um, This one's easy for me. Um, Where a situation has gotten so bad where you just basically say there's no hope. Where you say things like, "I, I can't imagine any situation ever where that could be different. Um, I've given up all hope. I've, 
I've given up on that situation entirely. If you're doing that, Jesus is not functionally on the throne uh, in your life. Um, because what you've done in that moment, um, what I do in that moment, is I basically say this is irredeemable. This is not resurrectable. Um, and the resurrection itself speaks to the fact that we don't have to forfeit peace. We can actually say this is possible. And then the last one is, is fortune peace, um, <laughs> which is basically isolation. I can get enough success, power, and control to distance myself from you, and then I'll be at peace. That's not the kind of peace that Jesus offers us, because he says here in verse 4, then they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Not their greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, his greatness. So when I'm trying to be great, which is oftentimes what I believe will give me peace, if my greatness increases, then I can be at peace. And this is saying to us, no, 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 it's not your greatness, it's his greatness that will actually bring you peace. So it might be worth talking through. Um, it certainly will take some courage to do that, to sit down and say, hey, are we practicing false peace, for, forced peace, you know, forfeiting peace, or are we practicing fortune peace? And where in our lives are we kind of going for peace <clears throat> that we long for that actually isn't the peace that is offered us in Christ? Because what he offers you, the fifth F is this, it's a firm peace. It's a sturdy peace. Because he is our peace. Jesus is the mediator of peace. He doesn't just give it, he is it. Right? And because we have him, we can enter into places of death, into places of difficulty, into places of conflict with actual resurrection power. Because the peace that was impossible for us to accomplish <clears throat> between us and God, he did it. That's what Christmas is about. He came down. He came down to accomplish the peace we couldn't accomplish between us and him so that peace on earth, goodwill to men would finally be possible. All right, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, uh, your word says, may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that uh, for myself, I pray that for my friends here uh, this morning, um, that you are the God of hope and that you would fill us. Would you fill us with joy and peace, Lord? I, so many days I'm full and yet empty. Uh, I'm full of things that won't fill me and I'm empty of the things that I most desperately need. And we have everything we need for life and godliness in you. So I pray this season of Advent would be one uh, that you would fill us to the full, that you would make us Agents of peace, peacemakers, those who are at peace because you put us at peace with you so we can be peace and hope and life and love uh, to a world uh, that is tearing itself apart trying to find the peace uh, that we have in you. May we give it away freely. In your name, amen.